News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you were somewhere public, like on a bus or SkyTrain, and you saw someone pass out, especially a young person, what would you do? What would you think was the matter? Would your first instinct be to perhaps think about a potential opioid overdose? Well, this is something our next guest learned about when it happened to her, and now she's well, changing lives because of it. Chloe Goodison is with us, the founder and president of Nalox Home, and joins us now. Chloe, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Now, before we get into what it is that you're doing, tell me about how this all got started here, because you had quite the experience on a bus, didn't you, or on transit? I did. So in um, a few years ago, I was riding the SkyTrain in Coquitlam, where um, I'm from Port Moody, but I was riding from Coquitlam into Port Moody. And um, I was 16, I was in high school, and a young person got on SkyTrain, and within a minute of being on SkyTrain, she had collapsed, and she fell right on top of me. And um, even though it was a busy, packed SkyTrain, and we were already two years into a declared overdose public health emergency, nobody on the train considered that she was overdosing. We all thought maybe she had fainted or um, maybe she hadn't eaten breakfast. And because of our inherent stigma in our head that people um, who use drugs all look a certain way, none of us none of us imagined that she was overdosing. So when it turned out that um, she was, she had overdosed because paramedics um, gave her naloxone, it was, it was very shocking to me. And I only tell this story because it really puts into perspective how misinformed we are about the public health crisis we're living through. Um, not enough people are able to recognize the signs of overdose or um, carry naloxone. Right. So when you, you saw that happen, you watched it unfold, you watched her kind of snap back, right, after the paramedics attended her and gave her naloxone. So how did that change your life moving forward then, Chloe? Most people would go, huh, okay, something to think about. But you did much more than that. I think it just, it was, I was at such an impressionable time in my life. I was in high school and starting to consider what I wanted to do post-secondary. Um, I was, I've always had a very keen interest in health and public health, especially. So um, this incident really made me want to get involved in the community and find groups that talk about the overdose crisis and um, harm reduction. And I found a group called the Tri-Cities Community Action Team. And together, we worked together on a youth team and we advocated for for um, destigmatizing language training and naloxone administration and training for all. Um, after that, I started my studies at SFU, where I currently am in the Faculty of Health Sciences. And uh, I entered a grant competition in my first year, and we ended up winning $3,000. And with this $3,000, I took my connections from the Tri-City Community Action Team, like Fraser Health and Share Community Services in Port Moody, and so many others. And I opened something called Nalax Home, which is a group of 34 youth in the Tri-Cities area. And we go into high schools and we talk to the students about overdose harm reduction, stigma, and naloxone training. So it's really shaped my life a lot. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely very, I've, I've found my passion for sure. You certainly have. So tell me, what kind of reaction, like what do you hear from high school students when you go in to talk about them? Like, do they know, do they understand what's going on with this crisis? There's, that's such a good question because there's such a range. We go into high schools and it's such a great place to capture kids because that's the last place where there's really, there's people who 
um, will definitely go on to university and they, they'll learn about this. And there's people who maybe that's the last time they'll be in an educational setting. So when we go into high schools, we find there's that same range with knowledge of the overdose crisis. So, um, for example, we'll have some students who know a lot about the overdose crisis and are able to tell us um, about the signs of drug poisoning and they maybe are carrying naloxone because maybe they do use substances or it's talked about in their home or they know someone who's overdosed or maybe they've overdosed themselves. Whereas there's some students who honestly didn't, like, we'll talk about it and they'll be like, we they didn't know there was an overdose crisis. It's never talked about in their home. They maybe they've, they don't read the news. Like it's, it's such a range. So whether we're meeting students at that first place where we're the first group to talk to them about this or that place they're at where they know a lot about this and they're just still learning, whatever it is, we're, we're there giving fact-based safety information. Right. So it's for some of them, it is an education. And I guess, is it because they're learning on their own? Are they seeing this among their friends? A hundred percent. Like this, the, the, the overdose crisis is not discriminating. There's a lot of high schoolers who are using substances and there's a lot of high schoolers who are overdosing. So when we go into those classes, we get a mix. We get those students who maybe it's just a really sensitive subject because they, their parent is overdosed or their friend. Um, and then there's other kids who just maybe just use substances and access to harm reduction services we talk about in our presentation. So it's a real range. All right. So then what what do you do moving forward here then, Chloe? Is it just about getting to those kids, making them understand how serious this is? That's a great question, too. Um, yes, our goal is to continue getting into those classrooms, talking to them about how poisoned the drug supply is in BC and just all the harm reduction tools available. We're going slowly. We're expanding in the uh, so we're 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 in the. School District 43 in the Tri-Cities right now. This fall, we're hoping to expand it to the Burnaby School District with the help of a group of students up at SFU. And then um, long-term, we'd love to expand across BC because I think this education should be mandatory for all students. All right. Are we paying enough attention to this, Chloe? I mean, you now are a part of this, right? You're part of this, and I see it every day where I'm just not sure people understand how serious this is. Exactly. I don't think there's enough attention paid to this. Um, I, for reference, I graduated high school in 2020, and uh, I went. I started high school in 2016 when we were already into our declared overdose crisis. I went my four years of high school without ever learning about it, despite it being a, the largest public health crisis around us and so close to home. So I think in order to to see the numbers of overdose and overdose deaths go down, we need to proactively start by educating students at in high school, at the source, about not stigmatizing people who use drugs, the treatment services available, um, the poison drug supply, harm reduction tools, and how to, and the importance of carrying naloxone. Is everybody willing to listen, Chloe? I wonder, though, because you're going into high schools, and I'm, I'm not sure, like, does every parent and every adult want you in there? Um, to be honest, we've been operating for a year, and we haven't had pushback it's interesting we um i think this, the teachers just prefer the fact that it's us um youth coming in to talk because we're we're all youth on our team so we're doing this peer-to-peer style in the classrooms which i think parents like because then their youth are more likely to listen to us because we're not an adult telling them what to do we're youth their own age so but and on the topic of like talking to their student talking to the kids about drugs which at the beginning, some parents were kind of saying, like, oh, we don't want to talk about drugs because this doesn't apply to my children. Well, we're living in a province where there's been 10,000 overdose deaths. And 
this this is a public health emergency. Public health is not personal health. This applies to everyone. This this crisis. So that's kind of our rationale behind it. We've also had our information looked at by a wellness nurse from um, Fraser Health, who's approved and signed off that all our information is fact based. So um, there's, it, it, it's just science and uh, any pushback we've kind of been able to handle. Well, listen, you're doing great work there, Chloe. So thanks so much for joining us to talk about it. Thank you. Have a great day. That's Chloe Goodison, who's the founder and president of an organization called Nalox Home. That's H-O-M-E. And she is going into high schools, talking to younger people about opioid overdoses and really prevention, how to recognize the signs of that, because she said we so often we don't understand what's happening right in front of us, all because she saw it happen right in front of her. This is Mornings with Simi. I love it when our Raji Sohal gets worked up over something and boy, she is on it this morning. Good morning, Raji. (laughs) Hi, Simi. Okay, I don't usually get worked up about sports press conferences, but I have about this press conference for a football team. It's the Paris Saint-Germain team. There was a question posed to them at this press conference about why they took a private jet to get to a very nearby city. And the head coach said after he like took a long pause and he says, oh, the club was looking to travel by sand yacht. And he thought this was hysterical. The star player next to him, Mbappe, he laughed hysterically like, oh, why should we even care about climate change? It's such a big joke or I don't even know what was implied there. But they had their punchline ready because on Sunday, a French train operator had tweeted that their journey was only going to be less than two hours if they had taken the high speed train, which, by the way, is a phenomenal way to travel. In I France. love the train. Yes. It's so great. So this got fans and the mayor of Paris saying, come on, you need a private jet for such a brief train ride. Like what is going on here? And using private jets has become this really big topic lately. I don't know if you saw that whole thing with Taylor Swift. She was oh, totally. under fire for doing the same thing. And, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, who has the nerve to go around commissioning documentaries about climate change when there, Simi, is no shortage of pictures of him topless on all of these super yachts. And we know how much fuel those use. Up. So I think we're coming to like a proverbial fisticuffs moment where the elites have you know long had this air of do as I say, not as I do. Uh, we saw it go down with Boris Johnson big time, right? And so many examples of that. But he ordered his his whole country to stay home during the pandemic while he partied at number 10. But on the eco front, I think the issue is exacerbated and way more obvious because we have leaders telling us as consumers and businesses, hey, no more plastic bags, no more plastic straws, reuse your cups, recycle your darn receipts. Meanwhile, we have the the people that have the most influence in the world laughing in our faces about climate change as though it's like just our civilian problem to solve and their problem to create. And I think that the reason this is going to become a bigger and bigger issue is because all those groups, uh, all those, you know, elite athletes and celebrities, they do charity work, uh, tons of charity work, but the planet and our climate are inextricably linked to all of it, to everything. I'm glad you, yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I have been reading about those stories too, like the Kylie Jenners and the Taylor Swifts who take their private jet in and around Los Angeles where it's like, okay, it would, maybe it would be an hour car ride because traffic is bad, but they just hop in their private jet and go for like 10 minutes. I, (laughs) 
I was speechless because I thought, what are they thinking? How, how do they think that that's okay? Like, and they didn't think that was ever going to get out and it might make them look bad. You know, I don't think they care. The way that they laughed at this press conference, they obviously didn't care. And in Sports Star, one agency wrote, you can't have 200 million followers and advertising contracts worth millions of euros and then expect what you say to not have any resonance. Like, how can they pretend that people are not watching and learning and following their examples? Yeah. And they are booking these tr- private jets, like you say, literally to just skip a little bit of traffic, just to float above it. I know. We saw Arsenal get criticized for previously taking a 14-minute flight to Norwich, while Tottenham, another team, took a 20-minute flight to Bournemouth when they could have easily have sat in traffic like exactly. the rest of us for 40 minutes. Like the rest of us. Exactly. Raji, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about BC's booster campaign. We got some of the details yesterday afternoon in a press conference, but essentially British Columbians over the age of 18 will be recommended to get that shot uh, coming up this fall. In fact, as soon as maybe even next week. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer. Thank you for being here. Good morning. What is different about this booster campaign from the previous ones we've seen? Yeah, well, this one is a, you know, it's a really important one for us, thinking about what we might be facing in, in the coming months. And it is, the, the biggest difference is we now have a vaccine that has two different spike proteins in it, one that, that stimulates the immune response we got from our initial vaccines, and another one that is specific to the Omicron variant. And since uh, late December last year, early uh, January, that's the, the variant that we've seen most commonly. And it's changed a little bit. So this is close. To, this one is based on the Omicron BA1 version. But we've seen in the, in the clinical data that it shows it gives good protection against all of the subvariants of Omicron. So that's going to give us better protection against infection. So any infection at all as we go through these, these next few months where we're likely to see an increase in COVID again. Are you concerned at all, though, that, you know, people who are concerned about vaccinations are likely reading about the vaccine down in the United States, which is, is more targeted towards those BA variants than this one is? It's targeted to a more recent BA variant, the, the 5, BA4-5, but uh, there's very little data that shows that it is any better or not than the BA11 that has good, strong clinical data. So we, we are following this and will continue to follow it and monitor it. But right now, the, the one that's been approved by Health Canada shows good, strong protection against the strains that we're seeing circulate in BC right now. So it's the one that we're going to, we're going to get out there, and I really encourage everybody to get. This is going to be another challenging year for us. We don't know what to expect. We still have a lot of uncertainty with this virus. It's likely, from what we're seeing, it's going to be some variation of Omicron. So we really believe that this vaccine is going to help us get through this winter. Are you concerned at all, though, that people have moved past this or perhaps they're not just really listening to the message anymore? I think all of us are tired of of having to have this in our lives. But the reality is it's, it's not gone away yet. 
But I also think that, you know, during the summer, and and I said this uh, last spring, that we're likely to have a pretty reasonable summer. We did a lot of things outside. We were able to get back to all of those important things, getting together with people, visiting people we hadn't seen in time. And that is important. We need that in our lives. But as we're heading back into more um, school and more indoor activities, many people are heading back into the office. We need to pay attention to the fact that this virus is still here. And we're likely to see some of the other respiratory viruses that we haven't seen in the last two years. And I'm particularly concerned about influenza. We have had almost no influenza for two years, which means most of us don't have that that immunity we get from exposure to it. So this is going to be another challenging year for us. But I really know that we know how to live with this virus now. We know a lot more than we did, let's just say. And if by getting boosted right now, in the next couple of months, we'll be able to weather this storm. Now, the take-up rates for the third shot have not been great, especially there's some concern as well about younger children and the vaccine rates kind of not being where I think health officials would like them to be. Given that, then, are you sure people are going to get this next one? Well, when, when it comes to the third shot, we know that a lot of people got their their primary series, that dose one and dose two, and those are really important because they're the ones that build up that uh, memory cells and the, the immunity that, to react and protect us against severe infection. So that's important. But we've learned that this third shot is also helps boost that, makes it longer and stronger protection, and for the first couple of months, it really does give you good protection against any infection at all. And now's the time. I know a lot of people were hesitant about it when they got infected with Omicron, maybe, um, or they weren't sure they needed it. Now you do. And I encourage all of those people who got your primary series, give yourself that better protection, both for yourself and for those around you as we go through this fall. And what are you hearing about influenza season elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so we've been watching, as we do every year, what happens in the Southern Hemisphere. And, and that's why we're a bit concerned this year. We saw in, in particular in New Zealand, Australia, um, that they had an early influenza season, and it was quite a severe season, which probably reflected the fact that they hadn't seen any influenza circulating for a while. So we are concerned, and we're looking at some of the modeling of when things could potentially happen. And for us, one of the things that could happen is that we'll see a surge of of COVID in November, December. And if we have an early influenza season, that would also happen around November, December. So that's kind of a a worst-case scenario that we need to plan for. We we know our healthcare system, system is strained as it is. So how do we make sure that we're doing everything we can to try and minimize the impact of those viruses on our on ourselves, our families, our communities, and the healthcare system? So that's that's why vaccination right now is so important. Okay, so this is also going to be offered. So the COVID nineteen vaccine offered with the flu shot this fall. It is, and we're looking at when the flu shot usually comes in later in September, October. So if you're somebody who's who's way more than six months and haven't got a, a booster shot at all, get it now and then get your flu shot when it comes in in October. But for many people, people at the highest risk, we had that fourth booster uh, dose um, in the spring booster program. And they'll come up to about five months in, in October. And the plan is to be able to offer both influenza and their COVID booster at the same time so that they have maximum protection when we need it most. 
Is this the future then? Is this what we're going to be dealing with every fall when it comes time for flu and perhaps flu and COVID season? You know, I, I don't think we know that yet. We'll know a lot more once we get through this year and we see what happens globally with, with the virus and see how it changes. There is a possibility we may need to get a booster dose or an, uh, another dose of, of, of vaccine, uh, maybe annually, maybe less frequently if the virus isn't changing as much. It's not as, doesn't seem to be as changeable as, as influenza. So it might be that we're able to, to go a couple of years without needing a, a different vaccine to boost that immunity. But I also think we're, we're learning a lot more about vaccines, too. And there's a lot of work being done on trying to get a, a pan-coronavirus vaccine, one that would affect any coronavirus, in which case we may only need one more dose. And the same thing with influenza. The, the leaps that we've made in understanding vaccination and immunology uh, with the COVID vaccine means that we may even have a, a pan-universal influenza vaccine at some point in the near future, too. All right. So what can people expect to hear from public health officials then? Should they look for that email? They should look for that invitation, whether it's an email or a text. And if you've been longer than six months and uh, you can uh, call the, the call line, you can go to get vaccinated uh, online. You can update your text and email now. That's something that's important. Um, and yeah, in the next few months, uh, we all need to get that booster so that we can protect those around us and ourselves as we go into this season. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the manhunt continues and police definitely want to keep that in the forefront as the search continues for the suspect Miles Sanderson in the multiple, multiple stabbings that happened in Saskatchewan on Sunday. Let's find out the latest now. Tom Vernon joins us now from Global News Saskatchewan. Tom, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me on. So I know there is still probably a very heightened level of tension and awareness in Saskatchewan, but we're getting more information now, aren't we? Where's the manhunt at right now? Yeah, so I mean, we had that alert yesterday. There was uh, potential sightings in the James Smith creation of Miles Sanderson. An emergency alert went out to members in the community to uh, lock and secure, to secure in place. Uh, as that search was conducted, police searched homes and in the wooded area around the Cree Nation. Uh, no evidence was found that he was there. So the emergency alert went back, reverted to a province-wide one of the manhunt continues. We do not know his whereabouts. Obviously, there's lots of concern, fear in the community. When that alert went out, we were uh, in a community uh, about half an hour later, just south of, or just down the highway. And we were going into a grocery store and the door was locked. They were letting in people one, one at a time, uh, letting you in to make sure that they knew exactly who was going in and out of the store. So a lot of, a lot of fear in the community, but a lot of grief as well. Uh, Ten community members lost. The names were just released uh, by uh, Saskatchewan authorities about 20 minutes ago. So we're, we're getting a better idea of, of uh, exactly who the victims are. Nine of them from the James Smith Cree Nation, one of them from here in Weldon, where I am, um, ranging in ages from 23 to 77. And there's families and friends grieving while they're still very much scared. Yeah, I can imagine. Are, is there still a heavy police presence then in that community, Tom? Not in Weldon. Um, so it was just one scene here. There, was, uh, there wasn't a heavy police presence here at the moment. Um, there, there certainly was yesterday on the way to the James Smith Cree Nation when that alert went out. Um, as you're driving around, as we were heading back into Prince Albert at the end of our day, we saw three or four uh, police vehicles out on the highway driving around. So there, there is a, you can sense a police presence around as, you're, as you are um, going about in this, uh, in this area of the province. But 
that they're, they're, they're looking all over the province. Resources have been brought in from other provinces as well. Um, in Regina, they, they had that tip on Sunday that of a potential sighting of Miles Sanderson. And they say, look, they've got all resources on, uh, that they need conducting that manhunt. Um, I've not myself seen any aerial surveillance, but they were being told that there's aerial surveillance in areas all across the province as they, as they search for the suspect. And I understand that all the names have now been released of the victims as well. Mm-hmm. Do we have a better picture of kind of where they lived or was there any, were they all close together? Was the area spread out when this happened? Yeah, so nine of the victims are on the James Smith Street Nation. I'm just going through the names right now myself. Uh, they're ranging in ages from 23 to 77. The 77-year-old was uh, the man killed here in Weldon, Saskatchewan. Um, he was the, the lone victim outside of that community. Um, we're actually going to hear a little bit more uh, from the victims' families a little later on today. There's a media availability planned for, I believe it's 10.30 here in Saskatchewan, which would be 9.30 in B.C., uh, family members of two of the victims. Um, there's out, so we'll hear a little bit more about how the families are doing and about who these, uh, who these victims were as people. Um, there's also going to be uh, candlelight vigils held across the province uh, tonight in uh, Regina, Saskatoon, and Prince Albert, where community members will be able to come together and grieve and express their sorrow and and remember the victims um, of this tragedy. All right, Tom, thank you so much for the update this morning. Thanks for having me on. It's Tom Vernon with Global News Saskatchewan with the latest on the manhunt and also, very importantly, the latest on how the community is dealing with this. And there is now more of an effort to being made to remember the victims here now that police have put all the names out there. We know who they are, getting a better picture of of really what went on on Sunday morning. And uh, there will be lots of coverage, I think, of the candlelight vigil too. More information coming this morning, as Tom mentioned. This is Mornings with Simi. It is an ongoing struggle that I think most households have to deal with. And that is, how do you evenly manage the chores? How do you make sure that one person doesn't feel like they are doing way more than the other person in a household? It's a tough one. And now kids going back to school this week, it just kind of, I think, furthers that divide for a lot of people, a lot of families. Let's talk more about this. There's an app that might help you out with that. Our Raji Sohal is with us now. Raji, this sounds too good to be true. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people could use this app. And like you say, as people are going back to kids are going back to school this week. And I think a lot of folks are using the opportunity to just reset routines, get organized in the household. And Simi, I think a lot of folks do kind of like a spring cleaning, but a fall cleaning. I know that I include myself in that bunch that do that. And my husband and I are looking at all the stuff that lies before us uh, for the fall. And suddenly our tasks are just huge. We have a massive to-do list with the kids and everything that's involved there. You know, it's not just the household chores, like cleaning dishes, vacuuming, whatever. It's all this invisible labor. So with kids, that means stuff like who's making their lunches, who's grocery shopping for their lunches, who is doing the meal planning this week, who's going to pick up that grocery And then stuff like who is doing the kid's sunblock, making sure that uh, their shoes and clothes fit after a growth spurt. One of our kids is just, uh, she's shooting up like a weed right now. She's so tall. Oh man, those days, yes. Yes. (laughs) And then also, um, remember activities, signing them up for soccer, piano lessons, all of that stuff. And these lists are massive. Well, now there's this app to do it. It's called Maple. It's for household management with a vision for the labor in the house to be split, to be split equally between both parents, whether that's a mom and dad, two dads, two moms, you name it. Michael Perry is Maple's founder and CEO. 
trying to bring technology into the home that allows for families to better organize themselves, uh, hopefully communicate better, and really expose all the moving pieces of what it takes to manage and run a home. And so we have uh, a bunch of core components. Again, we allow for people to organize, whether that's bills and finances and grocery lists, shopping or summer camp. And then inside of each of those plans, we built tools to talk about those specific things, to create shared work around those specific things, like to-dos, uh, to share, to create shared documentation through notes, and to have a shared calendar so that that way the burden of planning and managing the home doesn't sit on one person's shoulders, but it's equally shared amongst everybody. You know, when we launched Maple, our initial campaign was, it's not 1950, it's 5050. Um, you know, when you look at the data, which is startling back in the 40s and 50s, a majority of children had one working parent, right? Uh, mom stayed home. Mom was the caregiver. Dad went. Dad was the breadwinner. That world has drastically changed. Not only do a majority of children in today's world um, have two working parents, but in many cases, the data proves that mom is actually the one um, bringing in the primary source of income. And yet we see that mom still on average is doing two hours more per day of the invisible labor at home. And so really at the end of the day, becoming a father myself and really witnessing the odd social shift that is placed on mom's shoulders to be that primary caregiver, our whole focus and hope has been that part of building a happier home and raising healthier, happier children is really making sure that everyone is doing their part. This is such an interesting discussion, Raji, because I'd love to hear from people on this too about how they how they split the chores in their family. I know a lot of families do the inside-outside thing, right? Like I'll do yeah. the inside, you do the outside. And if that <laughs> yeah. works, great. But I'd love to hear if people have a method for how they divide up the chores in their family. Email me, simi at cknw.com because this can be a really tough thing to figure out. Yeah, and I think uh, the opportunity to use an app reminds you of what work you're not doing as well. So you might get in a rut with your partner, your spouse, where you think like you're doing the majority, but if you had it laid out, actually, maybe you would see after all the tally marks that, oh, there's a bunch of stuff actually that your partner's handling that you weren't aware of. Um, so it's nice to just see it all laid out there in the app. And it also feels more like a collaboration. I know far too many couples that have resentment issues that they just uh, quietly fester over because they think they're doing the bulk of the work. Here's Michael Perry again. And we're quite proud of the mark that we've had early on in our uh, very young business. And we hope when everything is done at the end of the day, Maple has been a leading cause of uh, you know using technology to create equality at home. And so you must have engaged in some market research about potential mm -hmm. users of the app before getting it developed. So I wonder what was buy-in like for husbands? You know, it's still our biggest hurdle. And, and to be honest with you, I, I really didn't start with market research. I started as a husband and we've been together for almost 15 years. And all of a sudden she knew more about the doctor's appointments. She knew more about what our son was needing to do. There's all this expectation, all this pressure on her to really be the caregiver for our child. And it was only along the way of building the company did I realize that this is so much more than a technology issue, that this is there's a genuine social issue here. You know, specifically, I think men watching how their own fathers operated um, have a very skewed and I think stained view on what it, what running a home should look like. And we see that that kind of image is changing, but certainly as a company, oddly, our number one hurdle is helping men recognize that it's okay to accept the fact that the system has been flawed from the beginning, that the system 
that we inherited as parents, that the world has changed and the system that we're living in today does not work anymore. Well, that's a good point there. So is this the way to do it, though? Will people remember to use an app, I guess, Raji? Yeah, I think it's a matter of habit. Like once you download an app and you're, you've logged in and you're committed to using it for a while, I always tell myself, try this app out at least for a week, whatever it is. And if I like it, I'll keep up with it. If I if find it really hard to stay with it for a week, then I generally delete it from my phone. But what I like about this one is how easy it is to collaborate. And I don't know if I really need it in my own household because we we are pretty 50-50 about stuff. Uh, But I can see how it can help couples just remind themselves of what needs to be done and and who's carrying the which weight. Right. It is still a lot of work. I think the important thing here is that you don't want other the other person to feel like they are carrying more weight, right? Because that can be quite corrosive. Yeah. And I think that it's important just to constantly check in around this stuff. Uh, We had a bit of a culture shock when our kid entered kindergarten and we found out how many more things we needed to be aware of. It was like, oh, it's like we have another job now, (laughs) just managing our kid's schedule after school stuff and all the demands of school and her homework and this kind of thing. It all takes up time. And uh, we have tried to stay on top of it, not falling more to one parent over the other. And I don't know if that's always going to be the case, but uh, right now we have been able to manage that. Well, let's hope, fingers crossed, that it stays that way. Uh, Raji, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Stillhall. You know what? This is a great discussion to have too. How do you work this out at your house? How do you make sure that one person doesn't feel like they are doing everything. How do you divide up the chores? Do you do the inside outside? I'll take care of the inside of the house. You take care of the outside of the house. What works for you? This is Mornings with Simi. How are we going to feel this? This Bank of Canada interest rate announcement this morning that is generating so much discussion. They hiked that up 75 basis points to 3.25%. Now, they're saying it's because we need to deal with inflation, and we all know inflation is sky high. But you know what? In the end, how is it going to impact you, your budget, your wallet? Well, joining us now is Mark Lee, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Mark, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Do you think Canadians are feeling the pinch on this? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the Bank of Canada has now been raising rates uh, since March, uh, and they've gone up three full percentage points. So, I mean, it really depends on who you are and what your financial circumstances are. But, for example, if you had a $500,000 mortgage and you're at a variable rate, meaning it goes up in lockstep with Bank of Canada increases, three full percentage points since the start of the year, uh, amounts to about $15,000 per year in additional interest costs that you're going to be paying. If you're on a, if you have your rates now, you may not, your monthly rate may not change, um, but the amount of interest that you're paying to the bank uh, will go up by that amount. And therefore, the amount of you're, you're getting back in terms of, of reducing the principal on your loan uh, is significant. So uh, it's, it's definitely a, a big deal. Uh, inflation itself is also a big deal. So the Bank of Canada is trying to uh, reduce inflation. People are, are seeing higher costs for uh, transportation in particular, uh, housing, 
uh, and food. But the trick here is that only about a, a third of the inflation we're seeing is due to domestic factors, things that are happening in the Canadian economy. The remainder, two thirds, is due to higher oil prices, due to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, uh, supply chain issues due to COVID and natural disasters and other reasons. So the danger in all of this is that the Bank of Canada is too aggressive, uh, tries to uh, really push the domestic economy closer towards uh, a recession, and then people start uh, losing their jobs and we get uh, a a more vicious cycle in play. That's the balance, right, that we're talking about here, Mark. So then given that, are you surprised that this was 75 basis points and the fact that the the Bank of Canada said this may not be the end of it? Yeah, exactly. I think when we roll back to the last uh, rate hike back in July, everyone was expecting 75 basis points and we got 100, so a full percentage point increase. So the Bank of Canada actually exceeded uh, what um, you know the financial markets and most everyone was, was predicting. So there's a bit of shock to their announcement. This time they, they, they hit the 75 basis points that everyone was expecting. So um, they're not being sort of as bullish as uh, they were uh, a few months ago, I think largely because we're starting to see signs that inflation is coming down uh, and also that uh, there's concerns uh, about the economy that I think the bank will be having there. But uh, in, in a sense, the Bank of Canada has to play a certain game around perceptions and confidence and credibility with the financial market. So essentially, they were delivering what was already being expected from those markets. Right. But Canada now is is more aggressive on this than other G7 nations, aren't we? Oh, Canada's basically moving in lockstep with uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, and other central banks around the world are also in a similar position. You know, a lot of the a lot of major countries have inflation in that sort of seven to 10 percent range, uh, and they're all generally uh, raising interest rates. So in some senses, the Bank of Canada, um, if they didn't keep in lockstep, with the United States, uh, then you would see more money flowing to the United States and the value of the Canadian dollar would drop. So that's another piece that the Bank of Canada is balancing out here. Okay, so what do you think the impact of today's rate increase is going to be? How are we, as average Canadians, going to feel this? Well, again, I think uh, the the main impacts will be uh, around housing. Uh, It depends on if you have a mortgage uh, or not and how large that mortgage is. So obviously people who have larger mortgages uh, paying a variable rate on those mortgages, meaning it moves up and down um, with these increases, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a big hit there. Uh, if you have a mortgage that was on a, a fixed rate um, that you got a year ago, you know, you're fine for the next a few years until you need to renegotiate. But that's the big question mark now is once you do need to, uh, to, to renegotiate your mortgage, how much more are, are you going to be paying? There's an overall impact on the housing market. One is that the higher interest rates make the cost of new construction more expensive. So uh, it's really important right now for for the federal government and the, and the BC government both have low interest rate programs to support rental housing construction. So we need to, to continue those. Um, it's also just we're seeing a lot of dampening of uh, activity in the real estate markets overall, a huge drop in the total number of sales. Uh, some smaller drops in prices. And the more this goes on, there's going to be more pressure for house prices to fall as people who need to sell need to sell at lower prices than they are expecting. Right. And that um, that is the kind of the fallout that we're seeing right now, right? Because we are hearing about things slowing down in that housing market. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people who need to sell can hold out for a little while, but at some point, uh, if they're in a certain position in, in, with their life circumstances, because they need to move or they're downsizing or what have you, um, they're going to need uh, to sell. So I think overall, as we're looking forward over the next, you know, six months, probably a year, uh, there's definitely going to be a, a pressure on, on prices to fall, largely because buyers simply cannot take on as much debt uh, in the form of a mortgage due to those higher rates. All right. All right. Thank you so much for your time on that, Mark. Thank you.